land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the BetaShares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a podcast by The Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of The Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on the mission to become Australia's most trusted property podcast and um, super excited to um, do an interview today. So a bit of a different flavor and it's with Eliza Owen, Head of Research at uh, CoreLogic. So if you haven't heard of CoreLogic, probably the biggest data provider, Eliza can prove me wrong actually, um, in Australia. Um, but we're going to go into a lot of uh, detail around being a housing economist. She knows about lots of different things in the housing market and how all the different levers come together and she's got a real good grasp of what's driving things right now. And um, so pleasure to have Eliza in the studio with us. How are you doing? Yeah, really well. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Eliza, we've known each other for a long time. I'm um, obviously interviewed a number of times on another podcast. But um, now for our listeners, I mean, CoreLogic, um, a lot of people don't even know who it is and what they do. And, you know, you did two stints there, right? So you were there and then you went to Domain and and that would have give you a different. What made you come back to CoreLogic and head up the, the research team? Uh, CoreLogic has a lot of really great people and really smart people. I often feel like the dumbest person in the room here, which I think is great for my career and my development. Uh, it's also got the best data when it comes to understanding trends in the property market. Our analytics are really sophisticated. They're timely. We have a daily home value index, which I think speaks to my own and, and also Australia's obsession with property. Uh, so it's just a great place to have access to all of that data at your fingertips. And it enables me to be the best that I can in telling the story of what's happening in the Australian property market. Awesome. So let's go through that some, you know, because core logic, what sort of data do you get and how do you get it and, and how do you deliver it up to, you know, people who want to get that, that data? 
So CoreLogic's data sources in total number in the tens of thousands, right? We're getting information at an individual property level from a huge range of sources that can tell us everything from when the property last sold to whether it's north-facing, has an air conditioning unit, you know, what kind of flooring material is in the property. And based on that, we're able to build really insightful analytics from the property level up. So one thing that CoreLogic specializes in is something called AVMs or automated valuation models. And that's essentially taking recent sales and listings information, combining that with what we know of the individual property and using that to estimate its value. Once we have that at the individual property level, we can start to look at all the houses in a suburb, a local government area, um, a, a broader region, a state, national, and we can say, well, what is that entire property portfolio doing? And that's essentially what sits behind our flagship measure of the housing market value and measuring that over time, which is our home value index. So we're basically looking at the Australian property market as if it's one giant portfolio of property and checking how the value of that changes day to day uh, rather than just looking at, say, the median sale price over the course of a year. Because when you're looking at housing market values in that way, you're only looking A, at what's transacted and B, uh, you know, what's happening at the median level. This is a much more sophisticated measure that allows us to understand dynamics at different levels of the market. And even if the properties aren't selling, what they would probably be worth if they were to go to market on that particular day. And so what are some of the um, the things on a more timely base? I know callers you do a lot around valuations, for example, and um, and, and construction. So how, what are some of the other things that CoreLogic get access to that allow it to stay really relevant to what's happening on the ground right now? So we look at all sorts of measures. We look at value, obviously, as a, as a major one that has implications for what the individual can get from selling their home all the way up to the broader financial stability risks in the economy. We also look at things like listings volumes, so how many properties are actually coming to market for sale, and that can be an indicator of whether it's a good time to sell or a bad time to sell. We can look at, of those listings, how long they're sitting on the market for, how much people are discounting their properties to get them sold. We look at sales volumes, so of those listings, how many are selling. We also have modelled sales volumes to account for a lag in data collection, so we can do most of our reporting uh, at least at a high level in the market for, for the end of the month. So we have sales uh, numbers estimated to the end of September. Uh, we look at the auction market. We track weekly auction results, which is also a really timely indicator yeah. of what market demand is looking like. Um, as you say, we have construction cost estimates as well because we, over over time, we acquired different businesses, which gave us more insights into, mm. uh, you know, what the underlying materials of, of properties are worth and, and the construction inputs. So that's been really useful as well. And the other big one, I guess, is rentals. Um, so because we have observation of all the rental market activity through uh, listings information and all of these other sources, 
we're able to estimate what a rental would be worth if you were to put it on the market. Mm. Uh, and that's actually been kind of a leading indicator of what's been happening with CPI rents as well, um, which are rents being paid. Our measure is more if you were to secure a new lease, what would that value look like? Mm. Eliza, you're at um, Domain before. Is it, is it you know, is, is search data something you can still get access to at CoreLogic or is that one of the, the sort of other things, pieces of information that you go and look out in the broader market to sort of when you're building your, you know, hypothesis, I guess? So CoreLogic is very much looking at the property view. When it comes to the consumer view, we'd probably look to other data sources the ABS is one really good example. They're constantly producing really great research on housing finance, for example, and that gives us a view as to the portion of housing finance that is being borrowed for investment as opposed to owner occupation, as opposed to first-term buyers. Uh, they've also done some interesting research around migrant arrivals, and we've done a lot of that comparing with performance in the property market. Uh, and uh, they recently actually released something on um, migrant settlement outcomes too, which had some really interesting insights around home ownership and found that for long-term migrants, their rates of home ownership um, were uh, after 10 years sitting up at around 68%, um, but that was getting a little bit lower over time. So that, that sort of stuff can be really interesting as well. Yeah, I guess that's something that, We've done a little bit on based on rental history. Like if we look at the amount of listings coming to market that have recent rental history, we might infer investment listings, investment sales, things like that. But mostly we're looking at the property view. Awesome. I get um, you obviously get a lot of insights into even just real estate agents, you know, doing automated valuation property, uh, you know, that they give to their, you know, potential listings, right? So you get access to lots of ways along the whole home buying journey. Um, Eliza, in terms of core logics, I mean, just in terms of your staples, in terms of your the things that consumers can get access to, I mean, I uh, religiously will, as soon as the monthly housing report comes to my inbox, open it, right? Um, you know, what are some of the other things that people who haven't had exposure to core logic can really kind of digest on an ongoing basis to, to really kind of, you know, sense check what they're thinking? Yeah, that's a great question. It's hard because like you said at the top, CoreLogic might not sound familiar to a lot of consumers because we're so business to business. A lot of what we do is servicing banks, um, financial institutions, real estate agents. But my job is very consumer facing, talking to media, doing awesome podcasts like this one. So we do actually have a lot of stuff that is available for free that consumers can hopefully go and make use of. That includes the monthly home value index report. So that's the one you're talking about where it arrives on the first working day of the month and you can open it up and, and get all the insights on price changes and medium values and sales volumes and things like that. We've also got the monthly housing chart pack, which comes out within the first um, seven working days in each month. And that's a more comprehensive view of the housing market in about 40 different charts. And that'll include things like dwelling approvals, housing finance, if you want to get that more sort of rounded picture of the market. But it also includes some useful metrics like days on market and vendor discounting. So at the moment, for example, it's taking about 30 days to sell a property across Australia. 
The housing chart pack will show you how that is comparing over time and whether that means selling conditions are getting better or worse for sellers. And um, if it's getting worse for sellers, that often means it's a better environment for buyers. Uh, so that's a really good one. And yeah, just subscribing to um, the research news via our website. Any other fresh research that we've got coming out, uh, you can get to your inbox as well. Yeah, there's something called the... Um... Pain and gain report, which I'm not sure you might have to pay for that one, but I mean, that's definitely, if you haven't ever read that report before, I mean, that's definitely something that uh, opens your eyes to, you know, owner occupiers and investors and who's losing money, whether they're buying houses, apartments. Um, you know, that's a, that's a quarterly report, I believe, that you guys release. That one's free as well. So most okay. of our research is free, but it's what's called gated content. So you'll just have to um, provide some details about how we can content, um, contact you and send you the reports. Uh, and then, yeah, there are so many free insights. Pain and gain is really interesting because it looks at the level of profitability from resales across Australia, which honestly has remained really strong um, throughout the past decade. Recently, we've been doing some more work on short-term resales in light of rapidly rising mortgage rates. We have found a higher incidence of loss-making sales for those sellers that had to turn around their property within a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, uh, and you know, a lot of people who leveraged up in the last few years, not just home buyers, but investors in particular, um, you know, you, you're finding that with your data as well. There's a huge concentration of investors leaving the market now rather than the owner occupies is is this the data showing that as well? Yeah. So one thing we've tried to track throughout the uh, really through the whole pandemic period is the portion of listings coming to market that are owned by investors, and we wanted to understand this in the context of a tightening rental market as well, because rental supply has been trending lower despite this kind of unprecedented demand for housing that we're seeing with record levels of net overseas migration to Australia. So what we found is that at its height um, in 2021, the portion of listings that were coming to market um, that we believe were investor-owned was about 38%. Um, so that would have been towards the end of 2021 where capital growth conditions were really strong and that profitability was very high. Um, historically, investors seem to be more present in, um, present in capital growth markets rather than necessarily high-yielding markets. That's just part of how our investment environment has evolved over time. And it means that our rental market can suffer when the property market is delivering really strong gains. But what's interesting is that we've also seen a bit of a reemergence of investors selling off, despite the fact that property values still aren't as strong as they were at their peak and selling conditions aren't as good as they were in 2021. We think that might have more to do with rising interest rates as well. So at the moment, uh, around 35% of new listings coming to market across the capital cities are investor-owned. And just to put that all in perspective, these figures, 38%, 35%, the pre-COVID decade average was only about 24%. So we've gone from a quarter of new listings to over a third are investment sales happening. So, um, yeah, it's a really, it seems very counterintuitive because of rent increases, but it's just a result of very high interest costs, even relative to the rise that a lot of landlords would have seen in rents. 
And um, I guess that's a sort of broad number, right? I guess once you start digging deeper into states, to cities, to suburbs, to types of properties, those numbers can, you know, really change, you know. You know, some areas would be much, much higher than 38%. You know, what's some of the, the bigger areas that you, you know, has, a lot of investors are leaving, I guess? So what we found is that traditional investment markets had exacerbated portions of investment resales. So, for example, inner city Sydney got up to over 70% of new listings hitting the market were owned by investors. Traditionally, it might be more around 60, 65%. So, I guess that was kind of where it was most exacerbated, but it was Mm. a pretty broad-based trend. I guess the other thing to note is that when we look at the ABS housing finance data, the recovery in investment housing finance has actually been a little bit stronger than what we've seen in the owner-occupier space. So even though more investors are selling, uh, a lot of new investors are entering the market as well. So investment housing finance is up about 13% since the start of the year compared to 5% growth in owner-occupied finance. Yeah, we're definitely seeing that as... um... As mortgage brokers, you know, the person who maybe wants to upgrade their home is, is buying an investment property because they can't afford to upgrade. And uh, the person who's maybe got an investment yeah. property would love to buy a home, but, you know, maybe they're renting, but they can't afford to. So they're buying another investment property or, you know, someone who's doing really, you know, has never bought an investment property before um, is buying. But, I mean, on the other side, the, particularly the investors with lots of properties, uh, with more than one, two, three, you know, are, are looking to sell one or, or two just so they can, get through this storm yeah. I guess. so it's a it's a real sort of and that's the thing the property market's got lots of different people playing in it i mean eliza if you think about the you know just talk about the residential property market because you know there's lots of other when you expand the conversation it goes in too many directions but you know what do you think are the things that support prices the most and in terms of pushing prices up uh, you know and i guess the the things that make it a great investment longer term, if you're thinking about the capital value, putting aside issues of housing affordability and homelessness mm-hmm. and all these other issues that come out. But um, you know, what are some of the things that, you know, I guess, support prices and increase price growth? Uh, I think that it's seen as an asset that is relatively safe. You know, people always go back to this idea of the brick and mortar as a, a very tangible kind of investment. Um especially so in Australia because of um, the nature of our democratic government, the ownership of of land that you get in most areas, uh, which is attractive not just domestically but potentially internationally as well. Um, Long term, some markets have had really strong capital growth. Um, So Hobart, for example, which is a market that I'm on often going on about is as having really good long term value because of the limited amount of new supply that goes into the market and the transformational nature of the market. That's had the strongest long term capital growth in the past decade. Values there have gone up over 70 percent. And we've seen that a lot through the pandemic. You know, there have been areas like Adelaide, for example, where home values are up over 40% since the onset of the pandemic. So that's an incredibly strong rate of growth that we've seen in a matter of just three years. I think, though, it can get a little bit messy when you do hear about those kinds of extraordinary windfalls, because not every area has performed the same way. For example, Perth is a market where recently it's had really good performance, but it had a massive downswing throughout most of the 2010s. Mm. So that's why it helps to know a bit about 
I guess, the foundations of different regions in terms of economic performance, how volatile industries like mining are compared to something like tourism or agriculture or viticulture or whatever it is. Um, I guess I often do that in retrospect, but, you know, through these extraordinary movements in the housing market, we get to develop better lessons around what makes a good investment and maybe what is a little bit more risky. Yes, I think you've highlighted some really good points. I mean, one of the challenges people ask those sort of questions like me is, um, you know, they talk about the Australian property market and what you've kind of done quite well there is both there was not one market, right? We're talking about different cities. We're talking about different parts of cities and, and you know, different types of properties within those cities, you know. Even Hobart, you know, you really spoke about, well, there's not much new supply coming on, so there's not like lots of new house and land packages flooding the market. So there's a there's a scarcity value there and, you know, that land's what's really scarce there rather than, say, the apartments, et cetera. You also spoke about, you know, the different industries, um, you know, that push prices up, you know, like if you're very exposed to one industry, then your success is really reliant on that industry doing well, whether it's mining or farming or whatever it might be or tourism. So, um, you know, what are some of the other things that, you know, that, you think that are you know in terms of our population or you know the demographics like what are some other things that you know really exacerbate this problem um, mm -hmm. over the longer term? So it can be helpful to look at a history of migration trends to understand market dynamics. One of the easiest pieces of we don't really do forecasting at all, but one of the easiest educated guesses that that we made about the property market prior to our borders reopening was just looking at historic arrivals of overseas migrants. Where did they go? What did they do when they got here? And historic research tells us that high-density markets of Sydney and Melbourne often have the highest volumes of net overseas migration in any given year. Parramatta in Sydney, as an example, accounts for about 5% of total net overseas migration to Australia, which is huge. Uh, Sydney and Melbourne together make up about two-thirds of overseas um, arrivals or, or net overseas migration, sorry. So, but that doesn't necessarily translate to capital growth and purchases because around 85% of migrants will be renters when they first come here. Uh, and then your chance of home ownership increases over time. Uh, so, for example, the strongest increases in rents that we've seen since we reopened our borders were where migrants would historically settle when, when they first arrive. And then you would expect um, the sort of historic patterns to play out in terms of people in or overseas migrants in Western Sydney, for example, sort of tend to purchase in the northwestern suburbs of Sydney where there's that kind of aspirational journey from renting to, to purchasing. So, that's been really helpful to understand. Um, I mean, migration at the moment is a huge issue, not just for um, Australians and not just for issues around the labour market and, and, and economic performance more broadly, but for housing, it's been huge as well. You know, we're running at net overseas migration levels of around 500,000 uh, on, on track for this calendar year, which is smashing historic records. Your, your uh, historic decade average would be about 215,000 in net overseas migration each year. And at the rate of current household formation, that means that this financial year will get an extra 200,000 households being demanded 
So the question is, where do those people go? In all likelihood, we're probably going to see more and more um, crowded housing um, and, and the average number of people per household rise because that's being met with constraints in our construction sector that means we can't build to accommodate at, at the rate that people are coming in. And it's also seeing a lot of people push for more of a coordinated migration strategy as well. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned a really uh, thing that I, you know, it's quite fascinating to delve deep on is sort of housing formation, right? You know, it's not just people moving to Australia that um, are creating more households. It's also the 25-year-old the that leaves the parents' house, you know, it's the the couple that, you know, leave share housing to, you know, start a family, for example. Um, and, you know, housing formation is, is, you know, do you think that's one of the things that supports prices in Australia is that, you know, we have got, you know, favourable demographics in terms of, you know, future housing demand already sort of baked in. Um, and, you know, also when you add on top of that, the, you know, being a strong uh, country for migration long term. I think so. I think it is reactionary, though. So if we think about household formation through COVID, uh, one of the big factors that drove up property prices in 2021 in the complete absence of overseas arrivals to Australia because of um, border controls and um, the, the sort of stoppage of international travel, um, a, a big part of driving house prices up over 20% in the 2021 calendar year was the breaking up of share houses through the pandemic. That came back to uh, income growth because a lot of people were getting more payments um, from the government or, um, you know, some people were getting more money from programs like JobSeeker and JobKeeper than what they may have actually been paid in, in a job prior to COVID. And a lot of people didn't want to see out what they thought was the end of the world with housemates. <laughs> so I can speak to that. I started the pandemic in a five-person share house. I ended the pandemic in a two-bedroom apartment with my partner. And that kind of happened to a lot of share houses. So much so that the average number of people per household fell from about 2.6 to 2.5. And it doesn't sound huge, but RBA research estimates it added to dwelling demand by 100 of 120,000 properties. So, <laughs> you know, just that shift alone. Now that we're in a very different environment where I think people have no choice but to reform share houses because rents are so expensive, prices are so expensive, we'll probably actually see that average people per household rise again. It already has come back to pre-COVID levels in the regional market of Australia. And the latest data suggested that it was on the way up for capital cities as well. Um, but I think it's interesting that a lot of that came back to income growth. When we got more money, one of the ways that translated was Australians seeking more space in their housing, probably exacerbated by the pandemic. But I think it also speaks to that transmission of income to, to housing demand as well. If once people feel richer or, or they're earning a bit more, maybe they do actually seek to have a house instead of a unit and stuff like that. Um, yeah, yeah um, I mean, it's a, um, it's a very, I haven't thought of that before, you know, in terms of the, you know, as people earn more renting, you know, earn more, they, they were looking for more space and they look for better rental options. But that absolutely translates into the housing market. If if someone is doing better financially and they can afford it, they'll look to, you know, 
you know, get the kids in separate bedrooms or get into a better area which they want to maybe closer to work or to desirable schools that they want to enter or closer to family and um, or, you know, they can have family to their place and come and stay so they need more space for that. So there is that aspirational part that drives prices. Um, you know, you get access to a lot of lending data. We do too. But, you know, what and, and what's, you know, has it surprised you, I guess, over the last 12 months? I mean, like you said, um, interest rates collapsing in COVID was one of the key drivers of prices growth. But with that flipping on its head, right, um, we haven't given back all that price growth, right? We've, we've given back in a fraction of it. So, you know, it wasn't just the only thing, I guess, cooking in the oven at that point, pushing prices up. It might have been the most obvious one, but what's what has surprised you how interest rates have gone up 4%, borrowing capacity have fallen 30-plus percent, um, even after accounting for wage increases, um, you know, and yet prices didn't fall off a cliff. Yeah, that is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, especially given the extent of the adjustment in interest rates. This is the fastest rate hiking cycle we've been through since the RBA started setting the official cash rate in the early 90s or whatever it was. So looking at the fallout from that massive increase in interest rates uh, where mortgage rates were going from, you know, 1% to 2% up to 5 to 7% where they are now depending on the product and, and borrowing, the actual volume of housing loans only fell about 8% and the value of average loan sizes only fell about 5%. Uh, so part of that is because people don't borrow to their maximum capacity anyway, historically. So that means that the amount of finance going out uh, could be a little more stable or, or the value of finance could be a little more stable than, than the underlying number. Um, but I think it also speaks to the amount of buyers in the market at the moment who maybe aren't as dependent on credit. So that's reflected in APRA data. APRA is the banking regulator in Australia, and they've been very closely monitoring how risky housing borrowing is over time. And they kind of intentionally put in some um, stoppages around how much you could borrow relative to your income, for example. In late 2021, October of 2021, they introduced a three percentage point serviceability buffer above the product rate, which was probably not too far off what banks were assessing people at anyway. But as interest rates started to rise, that three percent buffer meant that the serviceability assessment rate got really high as well. And again, APRA data showed that in the June quarter, that serviceability assessment rate, where the bank was looking at how much you would be able to borrow, was up to about 9%. And that means that of the new housing finance going out in that quarter, uh, only about 6% of it was on what we call a high debt-to-income ratio, where the amount of um, overall debt-to-income that you have is greater than six. The amount of homes with a 10% deposit or, or less, or, or the amount of um, loans that were going out for owner-occupiers um, at, at that level was only at about 7%. So that sort of data indicates that the people participating in the market in the June quarter 
aren't nearly as reliant on credit as the people who are participating when interest rates were kind of at that record low and we had a real buying and selling frenzy. Yeah, I think um, it's been one of my biggest learnings this year is the amount of money that's coming down intergenerational wealth from grandparents to grandkids or, you know, it might go through the parents, but the parents of, um, you know, now having grandkids, right? Um, and, you know, they are thinking, well, I don't want them to leave Sydney or Melbourne and I would rather give that to them and so step them, stop them moving to a regional area because I know they can't borrow anywhere near as much as they could have 12 months ago. And um, yeah, that that sort of, and not everyone benefits from that. Unfortunately, there's an inequality problem that, you know, perpetuates here. We would also say the people on the higher incomes are the ones dominating in the market right now because they're the only ones who can potentially make the numbers work um, from a, you know, an interest cost to a borrowing capacity. Um and so a lot of the, the buyers is probably baking in even more inequality. I think um, this is going to become a big issue. We've, we've seen a big rise of the, the YIMBY movement, um, which has been sort of cooking away for years and years and years. I think it's finally coming sort of mainstream. You know, you speak to lots of stakeholders. You know, APRA is one of them. You know, ABS, I believe you're speaking to the IMF, uh, International Monetary Fund, uh, this week. You know, what do you think some of the, the worries and concerns and how do you think that's going to shape the housing market long term? What are going to be some of the, the things that were potentially off the table, you know, five years ago, but are now, you know, really getting discussed as because these are becoming crisis levels, whether it's buying, renting, migration, infrastructure, there's lots of other, lots of pressure that housing is, you know, such key to. I think one of, or, or two really unique issues that that kind of popped up for me during this housing cycle. I feel like I learned something new about the housing market through every cycle we go through. But this time it was the kind of institutional investment in the rental market. So that's kind of been simmering away in the background for a long time. But it's come to the surface because throughout the 2010s, we only ever had this annual average rent growth of about 2%. Rent growth is now at 8.5% and interest rates are at a level such that not as many investors are keen to get into the market and provide rental housing. And in Australia, most of our rental housing has been provided by individual investors. So there's more of a conversation now about saying, well, what if we invite large institutional investors to buy up these buildings or, or develop new buildings of of multiple apartments, and instead of selling them off, they hold on to them and they rent them out. Now, the arguments for build to rent, which is what that sort of concept is called, is that those large institutional investors are more seeking rental income over time than capital growth. So you get less volatility from the supply of an institutional investor because they're not tempted to sell. Um, They are providing um, comparatively longer leases. On average in Australia, we only have leases that are max 12 months. Um, And it's something that may not fluctuate as much as what we've seen in that kind of individual investment environment recently. The only problem is to make build to rent work, you have to have very different tax settings to what we do now, where the final owner of a product absorbs GST. And if you own a bunch of property, then you have to pay a lot of land tax typically as well. But the government is actually looking at changing that. And even in the federal budget this year, the Labor government 
sort of floated and and um, was pursuing the idea of change tax settings for these built to rent developments so that they could work. And that's really the only time they did raise it in 2019, but Labor wasn't in power then. So this is the only time I've really seen that that um, agenda, I guess, coming forward again. Um, and the other big one is just how much we've focused on the mortgage market and learned about the mortgage market in the environment of rapid changes in interest rates. This idea of the kind of fixed rate cliff, which, you know, the RBA put out a lot of research on this just recently in their financial stability review and really downplayed the risks that come from mortgage holders paying thousands of dollars more a month, you know, especially for those who have taken up their mortgage recently. Um, and just how resilient I think the housing sector or the household sector has been in the face of those rising costs. People are saving less. They're putting less into their offset and redraw accounts. They're consuming less um, non-essential goods and services in order to really keep servicing their mortgage rates. And the risk of default in the mortgage market still seems really low. Yeah, I mean, it's two really interesting points. I mean, the build-to-rent sector is absolutely getting speed behind it, but when there's 11 million dwellings um, and I think there's maybe 50,000 to 100,000 build-to-rent in the pipeline, not built, it just hasn't yeah. been built yet. Um, very, very small. <laughs> we're a small percentage, but especially if we can start to get foreign investment money um, into Australia, um, not just using our own superannuation system, but using pension funds all over the world to basically provide housing and um you know things that allow us to grow our population it's a, it's a pretty good bet and if you maybe don't get as much tax but you solve some social issues and you get some more i, I think it makes sense for the government i think um the manipulation of tax settings is is an interesting one because it can go both ways right so they could potentially be encouraging supply this way or they could be doing things like changing land tax or changing you know is the house going to be included in the pension test or is there going to be inheritance tax long term? I think there's going to be um, lots of tax manipulation um, every time a government changes power, every budget. And I think that's something we need to get comfortable with. Um, so you yeah, said and and it's interesting that I mean I'm not I I feel a little bit ambivalent about bill to rent still just because I'm not sure what that looks like for the long term, whether mm. the outcomes of renting are actually better, more affordable whether the services and, and maintenance on a property and things like that is actually better under a corporate landlord than an individual landlord, I don't know. And I think if you're going to make build to rent better, you probably have to be very deliberate about that, putting the right um, regulation in place, making sure a part of it is subsidised to be affordable or social housing. Absolutely. Um, but I also don't see the harm in providing tax concessions for the corporate sector when we've been providing tax concessions for individual investors for decades. I don't, again, I don't think one is necessarily more mm. right or wrong than the other. And it also has really interesting implications for property ownership because there are there more and more there will be people who just never own a home because of how property values are outpacing incomes. But to indirectly own or be part of a super fund that then owns property and deriving the value that way, I think is really interesting and a reflection of the evolution of, of kind of financialization in um, globally, I suppose, not just in Australia. Eliza. 
such a good chat. Um, we could talk all day, as you know, but um, really appreciate you coming on. If you want to learn more about Lizo, and check out CoreLogic. Um, amazing reports, and I'm sure we'll have it on the show again. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Great chat. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.